As you can tell, if you are a regular attender here, uh, and most of you are, I am not John Moffat. John has taken a little bit of a break, and, uh, and I will be speaking to you today. And so what I've decided to do is uh, not what John did with the shadows of the Savior, because John went back and he did several things and showed some, several Old Testament passages that talked about the grace of God and foretelling of Jesus Christ and how all that fits together. Uh, mine's not necessarily that, but what I did want to do, because I grew up in a culture uh, like probably a few of you, especially if you grew up in this area, if you grew up in this southern Bible Belt evangelical culture, where Old Testament stories don't make a lot of sense. We don't know where they fit. And there's a lot of these magical things like David slaying Goliath and, uh, and Jacob and Esau and their little tricking of the father and all this stuff. And there's all these things that we are always taught that are just kind of fun stories. But as a kid, I'm pretty sure I never understood the point. One of those is the story of Jonah. Now, if I go to anybody and say, what do you know about Jonah? You know he was swallowed by a fish. Some of you might say, well, possible. We don't know. The Bible says fish, so I'm going to go with fish. But that's about all I think I really got about it as a kid. I'm sure I was taught about why he was swallowed because he was disobedient. But I don't think I really got the point of Jonah. Anytime somebody talks about Jonah, it's like Jonah and there's a fish. I also want to make a small disclaimer. I've taught about Jonah before, and anytime I do, I will inevitably get tongue-tangled, and I will say Noah. I know full well that Noah built an ark, and Jonah was swallowed by a fish. So if later I say something about Noah going to preach to Nineveh, know that I know what I'm talking about. It's just that when my brain farms it out to my mouth, it didn't work out the same. But I know what I'm talking about most of the time. So to get started, we're just going to read chapter 1. We're going to cover the entire book of Jonah. And if you're not familiar with it, that's not that daunting. It's not a very long book. Uh, It's four chapters. We're going to read through most of it. I'll skip certain parts just for the sake of time. But we're going to go through all of chapter 1 just to get the setting set in your minds. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may not know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for stories of this that we can see uh, where your grace exists. I uh, pray that uh, everything that uh, say today will be fruitful, uh, that, we, that you will ultimately be exalted in this. And Lord, we are thankful for your great mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So see, we see in chapter 1, Jonah was given a command. Jonah was told to arise and go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time. It was a very large key city uh, located in the area. And God called Jonah that, to deliver a message to the entire city of Nineveh. It is a simple message. He tells Jonah to call out against Nineveh. Later, we'll see in chapter 3 uh, that the actual message was that in 40 days the city will be destroyed. So it's a warning to Nineveh. And Jonah has an interesting reaction, especially if you contrast it to the way a lot of modern-day evangelicals react. And we all know someone who will tell you that they've made a major life decision because God called them to do something, and God told them to do a thing, and so they did it, and they felt this pull of the call of God on their life. Now, I'm not discounting the feel of the pull of God on your life. That's how a lot of us ended up here, I'm sure. But it's interesting to me that a prophet who spoke directly to God and who got this word from God, instead of following the call of God, decides that he's now going to flee and hide and run away as far as he can to get away from it. So it says he went down to Joppa. Uh, Based on context, you don't really need my explanation. Joppa is obviously a port city because he barters passage onto a ship. So this is on the Mediterranean, but what uh, I think you need to know to really paint this picture is uh, when Jonah goes and gets this passage on the ship to Tarshish, just so we know what's happening here, uh, Nineveh is located about 550 miles from Joppa uh, to the east. Uh, I know that's west the way I'm pointing for you guys, but to the east, about 550 miles. Tarshish is 2,500 miles away in the opposite direction on the Mediterranean Sea. And would have been at that time basically the end of the known world. Like this is as far as most people have traveled. So when Jonah goes to get this, he's not just saying, well, I'm just going to hide out in a cave and not go to Nineveh. He is trying to get as far away from this as he has given this directive that God has given to him as possible. If you know your geography, if you want to picture that on a map, Nineveh is like the modern day city of Mosul, Iraq. Uh, If you know where that is, I probably wouldn't if I knew that. And... Tarshish is located uh, on near, the map I looked at, I couldn't tell if it was Spain or Portugal because it was on that peninsula, and so I'm not exactly sure where the border lies, but it's basically on that peninsula with Spain and Portugal. So it's way on the other end of Europe. So that's how far he's trying to go. So he's not just refusing to go, he's basically just leaving as as far as he knows to get. And when I think of this scene, I'm pictured this busy seaport, and Jonah's in a rush, and he's trying to get to Tarshish. And so it's like uh, any time you would picture someone bartering passage to try to 
be unknown and be undocumented so they could go to a non-extradition country because of some crime they've committed. But Jonah's not a criminal. He just was told to go preach. And that scared him, and he wanted to flee. So he makes his way onto the boat. He pays the fare. He's on the boat, and not long into the journey, God sends a storm, because obviously God's plan is not going to be thwarted. And these guys on the boat are unbelievers. We know that because in the, as the storm comes, they say that each one called out to his God, lowercase g. That's in verse 5. And they hurled cargo in the ship, and they were trying to lighten it. They were doing everything they could, and Jonah was down in the ship asleep while all this uh, was going on which is also interesting that he's able to sleep through that. I don't think there's any major significance of that. I just think it's part of the story. I think he's just, it's not as significant as when Jesus was asleep and there was a storm going on and the disciples woke him up and he was just calm. Jonah was just obviously a heavy sleeper. Uh, I've been there. Uh, I remember when the, uh, I started to say this as though you guys were in the loop on this, but when I was growing up, some tornadoes came through my town and tore up my high school and tore up a lot of things. It was terrible. Uh, And the night before, I'd stayed up all night playing Monopoly with some friends, and then the next morning, my mother came to wake me up, but if she wasn't waking me up, I hadn't gone to bed yet, and so we were doing stuff around the house all day. So when the bad weather came in, we all went into the closet where we normally get, and I hit, and I was out. And the next thing I remember was probably a couple hours later was uh, my mom waking me up and saying, you've got to go to a friend's house. Dad is going to help clean up after the tornadoes. And I was like, what happened? So I can sympathize with being a heavy sleeper through the chaos. But Jonah's asleep, and each one, so they go to him, and he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? This guy's a little bit annoyed with him, uh, and he says, arise and call out to your God, because right at this point, they've all called out to their gods. They know Jonah worships a different God, and they want him to call out to their God, because their God's not working. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, and we may not perish. So they're not blaming Jonah yet. This is just another effort to stop the mayhem as they have gone from God to God and neither one's working. Let's wake this guy up and we'll try his God. And now they need to find out why this is happening. So they cast lots, which is a game of chance that a lot of people would do back in that day. You see a lot of things casting lots in the Old Testament. And no surprise to us, the lots fall on Jonah. And it was probably no surprise to them either. But they likely wanted some sort of evidence before they started leveling accusations at this man. And in verse 8, they start to question Jonah. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he says to them, I'm a Hebrew. I I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they became afraid. And so they ask him, well, what do we have to do? And Jonah says, all right, look. So Jonah's going to sacrifice himself for these men, right? He says, if you throw me in the sea, the storm will stop. And they're hesitant. They don't want the murder of this man on their conscience. So they try to row out of the storm, but it's no use. It says that they rowed greatly, and it grew more tempestuous against them. And this is the interesting part of this part of the story, because like we have, and we've not even gotten there yet, but Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and preach against them. And then he has these sailors here. But now look what happens in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, and look at the change in Jonah's writing here. It is a capital L that is the Lord, 
the holy God, the creator of the universe. And they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it ple- for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him to the sea. So they called out to the one true God there and they say, Lay not this innocent man's blood on our hands, which is interesting because Jonah is obviously not in- innocent. Uh, and therein lies a lot of the issue with uh, man and their knowledge of whether or not they need saving is their, their knowledge of their position before a holy God. They don't really know. So they call in Jonah innocent, but really we know Jonah has sinned against God and then that sin is obviously great. But still, they call out to God. And they prayed to God and they would called out to the, all these other gods and nothing happened. They prayed to the God and they threw Jonah in. And the storm stopped. And also the instance thing about lay not innocent blood on you, that this is something that I don't know if you caught. That they're calling out to God to atone for a sin that they could not atone for themselves. That they say, do not lay this man's blood on our hands. Lay not innocent blood on us, for you have done as it pleased you. So they're calling out for atonement from a God that moments earlier they didn't even care or worship about. So God has used Jonah's disobedience in this small portion of the story to draw more men to him. And it says at the chat, verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. So men who didn't believe now believe. Now comes the fish, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of fish three days and three nights. Now the interesting thing about this is this is the first mention of the fish and this is one of only three verses that mentions a fish and if anyone ever says the word Jonah to you, you think about a fish. And Jonah and the fish is, while a really big part of the narrative and bringing Jonah back to where God wants him to be, the fish is merely just a small character in this story. Uh, the fish is like the eagle that saved Gandalf in the two to- or in, from the tower when he was about to die, and he just dives off of this giant eagle. If you said that the story of the Lord of the Rings is about Gandalf and an eagle, you totally miss the point. If you think that this story is about Jonah and a fish, you totally miss the point. See some blank stares, go watch the movie. So now we're coming to chapter 2. And now chapter 2 is my favorite chapter in Jonah because of what we learn about Jonah in his prayer. Now, we will see later that, you know, Jonah still waffles back and forth in chapter, uh, chapter 4, but chapter 2 is something that I think we all need to look at together and just see, because this is where rubber meets the road, grace happens in Jonah, and we see that Jonah understands that, and Jonah realizes his standing before God. So in chapter 2... It starts with, you know, I said there's three verses that mention the fish. It starts with another mention of the fish. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, and now we have his prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. The, all your waves and your billows, just a footnote, is Psalm 42, verses 6 and 7-ish. My, this, and if you want to look at that, Psalm 42, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
And here it is, all your breakers and waves had gone over me. So he says, all your waves and your billows had passed over me. So Jonah, we see, is a man that knows the word of God. He's obviously a prophet. He speaks directly to God, but he's familiar with his scripture as well. He's familiar with the book of Psalms. And he's quoting it here in his own prayer. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered you, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." I love this because in all this talk about the fish, I think it was, I was much older until I actually saw this picture of God's grace. Jonah understood. Uh, I have some disagreement with some others that I've discussed this prayer with. Some see this as like a drunk's prayer, then kind of a last-ditch effort, like if you get me out of this, I'll never take a, drunk, uh, a drink again. Uh, I don't see it that way at all. So if you've ever heard that and that version of it, uh, that's not where I stand on this. Uh, I understand why you might, but I don't see it that way. I see it as a man who knows that he is saved by the grace and mercy of a holy God. And in a moment, he tried to rely on his own strength and his self-reliance threw him into this catastrophe. And he was quickly reminded of who he belongs to and who truly guards his soul. And in that moment, he throws up in what I see as a genuine and beautiful prayer. And it places all the focus on God's work and not his. If you go back to verse 6, it says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. And then down in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that none of this is of him. And this is also an interesting prayer because Jonah uh, is being very specific about being, about drowning for real. And so the salvation is the fish. Uh, But he's also, it's also a parallel to his own salvation from his sin in God's grace. Now we get to the last mention of the fish. And then the fish is going to check out of the story, and we're going to move on and see what Jonah does. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Gross. So the fish is gone, the fish has brought Jonah back, and the fish served a couple of purposes, right? I mean, Jonah was out to sea, and he's probably not a strong swimmer, and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so I mean, that tells me he was probably pretty far out. Uh, so the fish was salvation for Jonah. It was bringing him, it was keeping him alive so that he could fulfill God's will. Uh, I do think based on the prayer, obviously, there was a little bit of uh, go sit in your room and think about what you've done, like my mom used to tell me. And I think that Jonah got to sit there and meditate over all his, the wreckage that his disobedience had brought. But now we've got a revived Jonah. He's eager to go into Nineveh. He doesn't want this to happen again. And so chapter 3, we see Jonah excited and we see the results of that. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So he goes, and this time he's preaching, he's excited, and the message that he's given, that we, the only bit of the message that we're given in Jonah as he's writing In verse 4 it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
So he's going on there and he's doing this for what I can assume are days because I'm pretty sure he didn't just walk into the city. There's no television stations that he can go, hey, just interrupt your broadcast. I've got to tell everybody this. So Jonah goes into the city and preaches for days. Your city's going to be overturned. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, verse 5, from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, verse 6, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. When it says they believed God in verse 5, they believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They believed God. They knew and they understood the authority that Jonah spoke. They understood where that came from and they believed God. And the word got all the way to the king as Jonah's going around telling the city that yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Side note, Nineveh is eventually overthrown. It's predicted in the book of Nahum, and it's going to happen years after this. At least 100 years later, depending on which historical account of the destruction of Nineveh you believe. That's a footnote. So we get into verse 7, and the king says he issued, as it says, it got to the king, and the king issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. And it said this, By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This reaction was interesting to me. They did not try to regain any favor with God. They believed and then they threw themselves on the mercy of God. They humbled themselves before the Holy Creator and they begged to be spared. They did not appeal to him and go, no, no, we're changing, we're changing. I now earn your favor. Like then, so this is a true conversion of the people of Nineveh. They're now casting themselves onto the mercy of God. The message they received was one of judgment that came from Jonah, that the city was going to be destroyed, but their response was humility. They knew they deserved the destruction for their sin, but they humbly sought the grace of God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see God keeping his word. Now we move into chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the interesting part of Jonah because we have seen Jonah. Chapter 1, disobedient, flees. Chapter 2, he's in the belly of the fish. He prays. He's very direct about his knowledge of the grace of God. And then chapter 4, he's obedient. He goes and does what God says. God extends his grace to the city of Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, I think I missed those up, chapter 4, we see Jonah's reaction. Verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? What kind of reaction is this? That he was angry about the salvation of all city. Now, we've, Jonah didn't have the parables yet, but we know in the parables, and we've studied some of these in our home fellowship group, and especially in Luke 15, that we know how we're supposed to act whenever a sinner comes to the Lord. In Luke 15, we have the parable of 
the coin. We have the parable of the lost sheep, and we have the parable of the prodigal son. And we're not going to go through the whole thing because we've gone through those as a church together uh, at this point. But just as a reminder, Luke 15, verse 7, in the parable of the lost sheep, he says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Parable of the lost coin, Luke fifteen ten. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels over God, over one sinner who repents. And then in the parable of the prodigal son, the father throws a party when he sees his son from way far off. So this is how we're supposed to react. And then Jonah, here is the older brother, and he is not happy about this whatsoever. He's angry about the party. He's angry about God choosing to save this city that he's deemed unworthy. And if you go to what the older brother did in Luke 15, verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in, his father came out and entreated him But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he's very upset, and that's what we see Jonah doing now. And in verses 2 through 4 of Jonah, we'll go back to Jonah now, we see what he says to the Lord. And this this is fascinating to me. Because he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's... Interesting dichotomy here. Jonah's faith caused his own anger. He says, this is exactly what I knew would happen. I know you're gracious. I know you'd save them. And I don't like these people. And they deserve to die. And this is angering me. So I would just rather die now. And the Lord says to him, do you well? Do you do well to be angry? So he doesn't want to see this at all. So Jonah leaves the city. He builds himself a little shelter. And he watches. And he waits. And he sits there pouting. Because I feel like Jonah maybe is just holding out hope that a meteor or something is going to strike the city of Nineveh and he's going to feel like he was justified. He did what God said do and then they still got what was coming to him. It's what he's wanting to see, I feel like. So he goes and he builds a shelter. And what does God do? God improves his shelter for him. In verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. And save him some discomfort. So apparently Jonah's shelter was hastily thrown together. And God makes this vine grow over it. And kind of covers up some of the patches. And now he's got nice shade. He's got shelter from the wind. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked again that he might die. So Jonah's sitting there cooking in the sun, so God sends the plant, then God sends the worm and takes the plant away. So God is sending all this stuff because he's basically reminding Jonah who's in charge here. None of these things you have done. Like, I sent the plant, I sent the worm. This is all me. Because Jonah... Like a lot of us, even though he was fired up in chapter 3, 
A lot of us will sometimes start to go back and rely on our own and forget about the grace that God has given to us and we want to do it ourselves. And Jonah didn't want grace for the people of Nineveh. He instead wanted justice. And this is really, really annoying him. So then he says again, it is better for me than to die than to live. And God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Which is an interesting reaction over a plant. And he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make grow, which came into being at night and perished in a night. And should not I... Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That's not the population of Nineveh. It is not a bunch of barbarians who are uneducated. The 120,000 are toddlers and children under the age of probably two who have not yet been taught right from left. So this is God appealing to Jonah about what we would perceive as innocence in the city. So Jonah's wanting judgment on this city, and God is saying... There are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. There are children in this city that you still want to be destroyed. And this is how the book ends. And also much cattle. Last line of the book of Jonah is God appealing to him and says, 120,000 children and cows. And cows, you want, you don't care about the cows. You don't care about the kids. There's these innocents that did not, that did nothing. And you... You feel nothing for them. Interesting part about the book ending there to me is that Jonah is writing this and Jonah does not end it on a high note for himself, really. Jonah ends it here. And also much cattle. So what we know is that Jonah's heart did not want the grace for the people of Nineveh. He instead demanded the justice. And we find this attitude, I think, often in ourselves. The attitude of the older son. The older son demanded justice. He felt he... His behavior was righteous. He felt he had placed his faith in his own actions and they were good enough to earn something. That was the elder son. And then Jonah feels like he is somehow more righteous than the people of Nineveh. They do not deserve what he has. Jonah writes this book after this lesson that he's learned in order to expose the grace and mercy of a perfect and holy God. And he's including his own reactions to illustrate how we as sinful humans miss the point. Jonah knows that he is imperfect, so he's not going to write a book and say, look at what I did. So he actually shows where he was wrong, and he shows his sin for us and how we miss the point. The story is not about the faithfulness of Jonah. That part is exceedingly clear. Uh, had he been faithful from the start, there would have been no fish. We probably wouldn't know anything about a giant fish, and we wouldn't argue about whether it was a fish or a whale. The story is not about evangelism. I'm not going to stand up here and preach about Jonah to you and then tell you that you need to go into wherever your Nineveh is and preach the gospel and save that city. I'm not going to do that. A friend of mine in another church once told me he was going to preach on Jonah as he was going to fill the pulpit in the absence of their pastor. And he told the pastor that, and the pastor said, no, 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 uh, don't do that because I'm saving Jonah because I'm doing a series on evangelism. And it kind of makes me cringe a little bit because this is not about evangelism. If you're using this story to talk about how one man can make a difference in a great city if he will just face his fears and go into this land and spread the word of God, then you have totally missed the point of what Jonah is trying to say here. If it must be about evangelism to you, if you want that lesson here, we'll throw this out there for you. 
Let it be about how you can share God's grace with confidence that no matter what the outcome, his will will be done and that you're not going to be able to mess up God's plan through your ineptitude. Let that be the comfort you get. If it has to be about evangelism for you, let that be it. But this is not about evangelism. This is a story of God's grace poured out in a wicked city. It's a story about how God had a plan for salvation of sinners, and despite Jonah's early efforts, God's grace cannot be thwarted. This is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. When Pharaoh heard of a deliverer, this being Moses, he had all the male children of that age murdered. He ordered that they all were murdered. And then God protected Moses, and he was put in a basket and sent up the river and actually raised in Pharaoh's home. (laughs) Gotcha. When Herod heard that the king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem, he issued a similar decree and ordered that all males under the age of two be killed, and God sent an angel to Joseph, and they fled to Egypt, and Jesus was protected. All through Scripture, there are these stories like Jonah where God has a plan and God's trying to extend His grace and humans are trying to mess it up, whether it's people fighting against it or whether it's our own inept selves trying to screw it up and run. God's plan is still going to unfold the way God wants it to unfold. Even when the leaders finally thought they had stopped Jesus, they were acting under the direction of God and fulfilling his plan of salvation for sinners. So when they put Jesus on the cross and they crucified him, in their mind they were justly putting to death a threat to their way of life. And they thought they won, but they were simply putting in place God's plan for redemption. So all throughout Scripture we have... God's, as it's been said, relentless grace. We see that God's grace is being poured out on his people. And anyone he chooses, we can't deem that person unworthy. We know that we are just as unworthy as them. Now, it is easy, I think, for us to look at other people and think we are somehow more deserving. That happens a lot in my profession. Uh, Small crowd in here. I think everyone knows me pretty personally. I'm a police officer. And I get asked a lot, how do you... uh, how is it to deal with like the scum every day, the scum of the earth that people would say. And uh, with this perspective, it's really easy because, but for the grace of God, I could be these people. I could be making those terrible mistakes. I could be wallowing in my own sin. There's nothing within me that made me stand up here and be able to preach to you and then make someone else uh, that's better than someone else that is addicted to crack cocaine and stealing to support that habit. That's what Jonah didn't understand until the end of chapter 4. But when God goes to him and he says, do you not care about the children? Do you not even care about the cows? Jonah got it. That's why he stops writing there. He's not going to go and then go, oh, and then I finally got it and I was awesome. Uh, Were there more argument, Jonah would have included that. But Jonah got it. Jonah understood. And as we get ready for the table today, if I'm in, want to go ahead and do that. I know I'm finishing a little bit early. I'm not as long-winded as John. Uh, so maybe you are thinking there was going to be a lot more. Uh, it's interesting as we think of all this, that like as we're getting ready to go through communion and the Lord's Supper, that this was uh, instituted at the same time when Jesus actually called out his betrayer. And he's passing the plate to everybody, and then he's, he tells everybody that one of you is going to betray me, and then everybody says, is it I? And 
And Judas stands up and says, is it I? And he says, yes, it's you. That that's just one more thing that Satan was trying to do to thwart the plan of God and in doing so eventually brings about the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And that's what we're getting ready to remember together. Now, if you are here and you don't really understand that, maybe it's a little bit confusing because maybe you see it as, is this a work? Is this going to give me some sort of extra grace? No, it's not. It is just a way for us to celebrate in that sacrifice together. So if you don't really understand that, you can let the plate pass. 